0: petersfield's shine radio
1: this is talking books presented by Susie wild and tim o'kelly hello i'm Susie wild and you're listening to talking books our monthly guide to what's hot and what's not and i'm tim o'kelly of one tree books and our guest this month is candy
0: gorley talking about her sunday times book of the month wild song and You can hear the the world is not actually ending, but it's quite wet out there at the moment. (laughs) It's
1: very wet. We praise the first book, Bone Talk, and we pick up the story of young Filipino Luki in 1904.
0: Can't wait to hear more. But let's start, as usual, with what you've been reading, Susie.
1: Well, I've actually been reading, of course, our guest next month is Francis Liardet, so I've been reading Think of Me, which I really enjoyed, and uh, Northern Roth by Thilde Cold Holt, because I'm on stage with her at the Chimera Festival in June. That's now, I've fun. only just started that, so I'll probably talk more about that next month. Um, but I finished This Is The Night They Come For You by Robert Goddard, which was one of your recommendations when it came out in hardback. And you said I'd love it, and I absolutely Loved it. One of the things I adore, and this will come up with Candy as well, is when I'm reading a book that's a cracking story, and I'm really enjoying it, but I'm also learning heaps about, you know, history in some of that case, but also Algeria and 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 the colonial what the French did, and
0: yeah, I know. I think it's fascinating. I mean, Algeria is is uh, is one of those countries because it's not. A place not like India, where we where we were the coloniser, and so we we know have lots of books about it and lots of history and also Algeria is very much a French um, experience, uh, and uh, so we don't because we didn't never learnt about it.
1: Only very fictionalised. I did Albert Camus for French A level, L'étranger. May we? May we? D'accord. Right. That's that's mostly it. So how about you, Tim? Well, I've I've had quite. a been
0: done quite a lot of readings this month actually strong female character by fern brady now she is a stand-up um comedian um and this book is very funny as you'd expect but it's also very moving because it's a memoir of of her incredibly self-destructive behavior which she which she went through in her uh, in her teens in her in her 20s um and not realizing that she was she was she basically was an autistic woman which is a something that that uh, the medical profession didn't really believe was possible. I think in, in uh, twenty years ago, um, what well, that a woman that a could woman be could, could exhibit these you know the, the kind of characteristics. Um, she was just nasty. She was just I and mean, her parents said you just you just bad you know. Right. Um, and uh, it's a pretty horrifying story in some ways, and it's brilliantly written. I think she she really gets across the uh, the emotional experience that she that she under, went through. The second book I was enjoyed was Red Queen by Juan Gomez. Durado, which is reads a bit like, um, girl with the, bit like the girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, it's a it's a brilliant another neurodiverse uh, woman, <laughs> um, but it's it's first in first in the series. It's going to be it's going to be a really big book, I think. It's set in Spain, and it's um, what era? Of, it's modern, oh, okay. contemporary, and, it, and it's it's a sort of uh, police procedural in, on one level, but it's a bit more than that. Ooh, so that sounds good. That I, I did enjoy that. Cleopatra and Frankenstein um, which is a uh, by Coco Mellers this has got echoes of Sally Rooney it's a very very it's a young writer um she's a she's a british writer living in new york um uh, she's actually in, in the west coast now but she, it's set in new york this book and it's um it's about a sort of love story between a, a young artist and a an a uh, advertising man a madman uh, Madison Avenue man, mm. uh, for, who is twenty years her, her senior, uh, and they, they they fall in love and they have this passionate uh, sort of. Uh, they get married and um, and things don't quite work out as as um, we probably realise they weren't going to work out that well. Um, but it's, it's it's very well observed and um, sort of a bit like I say a bit like Sally Rooney, um, that sort of thing. Um, but with probably with more sex though uh, So that's Cleopatra and Frankenstein. The Theory of Not Quite Everything by Cara Gnoddy. Um, oh,
1: i wondered how to pronounce I, that. I, I, I don't
0: know how you pronounce it. Oh. She's a South African writer. Oh. Um, but it's the story of, of uh, Mimi and Art, brother and sister who live together um, in the house they grew up in after the tragic death of their parents and they're in their early 20s. And Art is a brilliant and brilliantly irritating mathematician. Hmm. Uh, Mimi is his sort of de facto housekeeper. Um, and, but she wants change. She wants to... Spread her wings, do different things, have a relationship—all those things—and um, of course, the start of that process then has big repercussions. So um, it's another book about someone who's who's uh, neurodiverse. Yes, it's so uh, so I've have been have doing a bit of a thing this <laughs> this, this month, um, but I thought that was that was really good. And The last book I want to talk about was um, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Oh, which I is, want to read. Which that. is a, a hugely entertaining. Sort of again, it's another kind of modern love story, um, and it's uh, about writers this time. In uh, and it, it's it's TV writers who write comedy, uh, and it's um, it's brilliantly done.
1: It made me think of Lisa Evans actually, who's one of our guests. Do you remember? Yes, who yes. Produced Father Ted, yeah, and also wrote some brilliant books. Brilliant. I really look forward to those. I'm definitely going to get the Curtis Sittenfield. Well, we're really excited to have my old friend, Candy Gourlay, with us today. Candy and I were trying to work out when we last saw each other and it could be as long ago as 10 years at an SCBWI conference when we were were on the stage. I was on the stage um, because I was front of house not because I had done anything noteworthy. No no you were hosting something. Oh was I actually doing that?
2: I remember recommending you I said oh she'd be really good at
1: hosting something. Excellent you see you see it all goes back to Candy but we were both desperately trying to have recognition and be published at that stage and so it's really wonderful we were just ticking off authors that we've interviewed here Tim but also who were sort of part of the pulse that you got going who are now really established authors so it's a wonderful launch pad.
2: It's incredible I mean you never you never uh, think that it would ever happen in those days, and you were just enjoying hanging out with other wannabes. I know.
1: It's really good. But I'm going to pass over to Tim now. Well, I'm just going to gonna inter- inter- introduce
0: Candy formally. Um, she was born in the Philippines, grew up under a dictatorship, and met her husband during a revolution, so quite a- an exciting <laughs> time. Um, growing up, she wanted why books only featured pink-skinned children who lived in worlds that didn't resemble her tropical home in Manila. It took her years to learn that the Filipino stories, too, belong in the pages of books. She's been shortlisted for many prizes, including the Warstons and the Blue Peter Prize, for <laughs> Tall Story, and more latterly, the Guardian Prize for Shine and the Costa and Carnegie for Bone Talk. And she might explain why it's called Bone Talk a bit later, but we'll come to that. Um, She loves making comics and waging war on the snails in her garden. I've got written here, that's that's an eccentric (laughs) thing. That's private information. Sorry. Um, It's about to begin, the war is about (laughs) to begin. You and me both. So tell us, what inspired Wild Song?
2: What inspired Wild Song? Well... I, I found a photograph back in 2005. I was working on a nonfiction book about Filipino, the Filipino diaspora. And I was trying to find out when was the earliest time that Filipinos were recorded to have traveled a- away from home. And I found a photograph of a, um, an Edwardian-looking American woman she was wearing, you know, you know that, that silhouette, that fashion silhouette of mm-hmm. the Edwardians where women look like pigeons. Yes. They're all wearing this corset and they're bulging Critics and all and these. Bustles at the back. Yeah, and, and yeah. weird, weird bulging yeah. kind of silhouette. And she was dancing with a native Filipino boy in a G-string. And I immediately recognized the boy as a a Filipino indigenous person. Uh, they're called Igorots uh, in the Philippines. And it was such a weird picture because it was 1904, and in the background were all of these huts, Filipino huts. And I was like, I, this, this must be some kind of important photo because I've never seen it before, but it looks like we should know about it. And I discovered that it was about uh, set in the World Fair of 1904 in St. Louis, Missouri. And I thought that would make such a great middle-grade novel. At the time, I was completely middle-grade orientated, and I wanted to write a book about a Filipino boy who goes to the World Fair. At the World Fair, they invent the first hot dog, the first ice cream cone, and it's a story about a boy whose eyes are open to this incredible world of invention, and and his coming of age, he, he becomes an inventor himself. And then I started to research the story and discovered It's not what I thought it was.
0: No, these things seldom are, are they? Mm. Um, And just just to pick you up on something, on the the igorot you talk about, isn't that a... I get the impression from the book that it's a kind of disparaging term. Or it was a disparaging
2: yeah. term, yes. Yeah. So, um, for many, many years, Igorot actually literally just means uh, person from oh. the mountains, and that it, and it was a kind of it was a bad word. It was like the N word in the Philippines, right. where uh, it was a word you used when you wanted to disparage someone and tell them that they're primitive, yeah. you know. So that word was a was a bad word for many. And the and the people themselves didn't call themselves Igorots. They had they were whatever tribe. They belong to. But the blanket term of lowlanders and um, westerners who came in was igorot. If, during the, uh, the time of the book, the setting of the book, that word was... They, they learn about the word
1: yeah. in
2: the process of going to the World Fair. But years later, they appropriated the word, them, word themselves. And now a region in the Philippines calls themselves... They call themselves igorots. They're right. proud to be igorots. Okay and oh. they they do the same um, performances that they did at the world fair but this time on their own terms so it's oh, it really really interesting how a word can change meaning yes
0: indeed and I, and bontok is, is the is the name that they call themselves yes. and and of course which is as you said as you were saying earlier a kind of wordplay on your previous bone talk
2: yes is- so bontok is the place where they come from it's right. bontok used to be a cultural it was a cultural area so they kind of shared similar culture all the tribes that lived within Bontok. Um, and when the Americans came they couldn't pronounce Bontok. They would say Bontok. Let's go to Bontok. And that's yeah. why I called my book Bontok, but the book that preceded Wild Song.
1: Right. And the characters are younger in Bontok. Um and the same characters that then appear in Yes, yeah, so I did talk. I did a JK Rowling. You did. So <laughs> <laughs>
2: Bontok is middle grade. They're 10 years old. And in Wild Song, it's young adults and they're 16 or 15. I can't remember. I think I did something wrong with the maths. Yeah, I
0: I, I yeah, I was reading it. I was thinking they were around about, I don't think you say in the book, I think, but I kind of, you know, how you, your mind goes through it. Like when when I was reading a book the other day and I was trying to work out when it was set, what year it was set. And I kept All these clues kept on coming in at me and I sort of worked out eventually it was where it was. But this one, I'm trying to work out from reading the book how old the, the, the two principal characters are, and I reckon 15, 16 was about right. But, uh, so yes, of. they're
1: adults, but they're yes. old enough to marry by the time of Wild Song. Yes. That's the thing. It's like with my books, with the Vikings, actually on the cusp 13, 14, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact that that's the marriage age, so I got completely the same. Yes, at the and, and my book lodge, um, a, a bunch of... Uh, Igorot children came to
2: my book lodge and I was telling the story of of, uh, uh, my characters are now 15 or 16 and they're old enough to marry and the children all went
1: Ew! <laughs> yeah <laughs> one of the things i really loved about it candy and i did really love it which is on the train journey so you mentioned learning about not just learning about the world but learning about their place in the world on the train journey it's always difficult is it because i don't want to have spoilers but i do want to say this um and it's that thing that you i don't know how you do it you make us sort of keep shifting focus between being the people we are, i.e. being modern, white British, in our case, Western view, and also totally, because it's the point of two protagonists, being with Lucky and... Sam to, yeah. and um And then they're on this train and they're viewed as idiots because they're freezing to death. But the reason you give... For the fact they're freezing to death, you completely understand. You're completely You're with so them. Spoilers? You're spo- no that spoilers, isn't, ladies though. and gentlemen. That isn't a spoiler <laughs> because we all know that. Because um, you yeah. I'm not saying what happens or why. Simply that we understand it, we get it, and. The thing I was going to link it to was that this bloke that I was talking to the other day has just come back from Brussels and he said he was horrified that we all know about the Belgian Congo and Heart of Darkness and everything and he was appalled that he hadn't realised that some of the people from the Belgian Congo were swept up and taken to Brussels and shoved in this kind of village and were berated for not being native enough. and But... It was, it
2: was a thing of the era. So from the 1880s, or even earlier, there were world fairs all over Europe. Really? Yeah, and in the United States later on. Um, and one of the innovations, I think it was the French who invented it, was they started to bring native peoples from the, 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 their, their, their new colonies. And if you imagine people didn't travel so they, they, very, very few people were able to travel and see these strange people. To bring the, to bring native people, and show them to the world was like bringing the world to Paris and bringing the world to Brussels and bring. Which is
0: what they were doing with with zoological parks, you know, and it, and it was it's, it was treating indigenous people like they were kind of things to look at, and that that's the point, I suppose. Yeah,
2: but rather did rather they mean they well? That was the mm. question in my mind because. You know, I can't believe that somebody will set up and say we're going to go get these people and we're going to treat them like animals and we're going to, you know, the question in my mind was, you know, when people do things like that, that today we look back upon and think, how could they? We cannot imagine ourselves doing it. What was going through their minds? And I thought, well, maybe they didn't mean it. Maybe there was a, it was well-intentioned. It was all about this being able to bring the world to people who cannot travel. But when I started to research, I discovered that it came from a really, really dark place. The United States uh, anthropology was maybe 20 years old, and it was caught up in this whole new, new science of race. Because you have to remember that the United States had just uh, finished having a civil war. Uh, they'd had a period in which enslaved people had been given their freedoms. Mm-hmm. And there was a big pushback from the, from the American South who had lost all kinds... Of, they'd lost a lot of their economy because all the workers had been freed. Um, and there, and it was, so it was a time of Jim Crow, like terrible, terrible racism. Mm-hmm. And this new, new science that had come up called eugenics was all about trying to justify uh, the way they were treating people of colour. So it went right back to there. Yeah, and the whole fair was structured uh, according to race, with the white Americans at the top and the Filipinos at the very bottom.
0: I was thinking about two things in relation to indigenous Americans. Um, And one is that just before the Civil War, of course, there had been all these these wars against their... uh, um, the Dakota Wars and all the other other sort of really basically almost genocidal uh, the uh, Indian Wars. Yes, Liverpool. the other thing you talk about the uh, you talk about the Redskins in the book, and they said, "Well, actually, we said so these are guys have have got Redskins. It's the it's, it's this it's the it's the Americans that have got Redskins. What's going on here? I don't really understand." So. Uh, that was that was a couple of you know well, that was one of the out, but...
2: really fascinating things about when when I was looking at the the era and what happened around the era, the the Indian wars, the so-called Indian wars, had just ended well they hadn't just and the Indians by that time the Native Americans were being pushed into reservations yep. um, which made the use of the word reservation to describe Filipino the Filipino village really kind of jarring mm. um, so they were, they were made to live in reservations they were not allowed to wear their native dress they were not allowed to practice their cultural uh, rituals or practice their religion they were not allowed to they were made to speak in English their children were taken away and put into boarding schools. In fact, at the fair, there was an exhibition of board, uh, an Indian boarding school to show how, um, how Americans were, were civilizing Indians. Yeah. And the only place that Indians could actually wear their own clothes, practice their religion, um, speak their language, was by participating in Wild West shows. Which yeah. had been invented a few years earlier by um, Buffalo Bill, the famous Buffalo mm-hmm. Bill. Yeah. Um, in fact, they so Indians want, wanted to be in Wild West shows. They they were paid well. They were treated quite well by Buffalo Bill, uh, although the Wild West show at the World Fair was uh, run by somebody else. Um, and it was a chance to make money and travel, which they didn't have in in the reservation. So it was a really interesting thing, and I wanted to actually do uh, use that story in my book. But there's just only so much you can do, sure.
1: doesn't that link? Didn't one, one come over and meet Queen Victoria? Was that one of, Was that the Crystal Palace? Exhibition, the great exhibition here, and linking all the world fairs and so on. Oh, I, I don't Do you know think, about the. I think Queen Geronimo Victoria. or somebody came over. Well, here. Geronimo was at Was, it, in, in was here, the world he? fair? I was thinking another
0: thing is the is the giving them of, of money, and and saying, well, you know, mm. we're going to give you thirty five cents a day and an opportunity to get more money if you if you if you sort of jazz things up so that you look more savage, mm. then we'll give you more money. And then it's kind of. That was, that was again, very sort of uncomfortable. The
1: and the root thing. of all evil, as soon yeah. as that comes yeah. in. It's like eating the apple. Candy, at what point do you conduct your research? Do you write the story first and then fill in with what you need to know? Or is it the research that fires your imagination? Well,
2: I haven't written very many um, many historical novels, actually. So I started writing this book back in... T- maybe 2008 and uh, I called it the invention of the hot dog and it was this happy little story and I decided I knew a little tiny bit about the world fair I'll write a few chapters and then start researching and then when I started researching I was like oh my god um 1904 was the year of the World Fair. 1903 was the end of the Philippine-American War because the United States invaded the Philippines in 1899 and they were surpro- taken aback when the natives fought back and there was a war that dragged on. You can imagine the Ukraine War. It dragged on even though they were fighting barefoot soldiers. And in 1903 they declared that they had won the war. So wasn't
0: that, wasn't, I mean, it wasn't supposedly against the Spanish... The Spanish um, colonial power there, wasn't it? That was the idea of the of the war initially, wasn't it? By the so, Americans.
2: Well, it's, it's a long story. <laughs> yeah, it's a okay, long story. Well, but to, to make yeah. a, a long story short, we had a revolution against Spain, which had ruled us for three hundred years. Um, in eighteen ninety, it started in eighteen ninety seven ish to eighteen ninety eight, and Spain never kept a military, a big military uh, presence in the Philippines. So we were winning. And then the Americans said, we're going to help you. And they sent ships over with, um, I can't remember the name of their famous general, uh, admiral. And they defeated the, uh, the Spanish Navy and then landed. And, and the Filipinos were like, oh, okay, great, let's take over Manila. And they said, just a minute, we're just going to go into Manila. And then the next thing we knew, they'd, they'd taken over and we were the enemy. I'm talking as if I was alive in those days but that was the way that's the way that it was kind of snatched from right under our noses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then uh people decided to fight and it was a very very terrible terrible war i mean there's some there's some people who claim that uh a quarter of the population died. I think, it's a, I think that's an exaggeration, but a lot of people died. If you look at photographs of that era of Filipinos during the war, it's mostly of, of great big pits filled with bodies. So it was a terrible Do war. Do you
1: think that that sort of like is a genetic trauma, that that kind of history is passed down? I think it might be an oral history... I'm thinking of my own Welsh background. There's a lot. I, that I happens. think
2: there is. There is that, but the, the, the confusion. The, the strange thing about the our relationship with America is that we very, very quickly fell in love with America. So Filipinos became very Americanized. You must remember that that era when they when they when they were colonizing us, which was from 1903 all the way to the end of World War II, um, was the time when they were annexing Alaska. Hawaii. And during that time, Alaska and Hawaii became, um, became states of the United States. And there was all kinds of good stuff that, about that, because we knew that they knew that their economies were going to pick up. I mean, all the stuff about indigenous people by the by. Mm-hmm. And so there was, a, there was a movement in the Philippines for statehood. We thought we, could, we would become a state of the United States. And my parents' generation of the 1930s, the pre-war generation, were the disappointed generation who thought they would become Americans. They were so American, they, they danced, they had barn dances, uh, square dancing, they, they knew all of the pop songs, they watched Tarzan and the silent movies. I mean, it was they were so American. And then suddenly they were told, no, it's not going to happen. And then World War II happened. And when World War II happened, we were in American territory. And we were the second most devastated city in the world in World War II, which nobody realizes. No. Nobody realizes it. And we were a U.S. territory. But the Americans never claimed that because that means that they suffered during World War II. They like to say they never, U.S. territories were not touched by World War II, but we were. We were bombed out of, bombed to oblivion. There's your next book. <laughs> I, I'm never going to write another book again. <laughs>
1: this is it. She says that regularly. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I think yeah, I think it sounds like a cracking idea to get take the story forward, actually, because cause in this country, we seem to know very little about, about yes, nothing. Uh, the Philippines. And, um, you know, I, I knew a little about the the, the American-Philippine war, but I didn't really, I didn't have no conception of, of the history, and it's, it's an incredibly populous country, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the population of the
2: Philippines is. We it's are the only of... Catholic country in Southeast Asia.
0: Right. Yes, okay. and, there's a,
2: and there was a, an attempt to um, introduce uh, more birth control, birth control programs, and there was huge opposition to it, so
1: that's why we were a very
2: populous
0: Very populous country, <laughs> okay. okay.
1: It's okay. fascinating. I think there's, there's even a, a kind of hierarchy to racism, Um, because I find that many of the adverts now, thank goodness, uh, are not just populated by people that look like me and Tim, Um, uh, but I would say more Afro-Caribbean and mixed marriages. There's still very few people, I would say, of any Asian country. But when it comes down, if you would say Filipino to people when I have mentioned the book they would expect it to be a sort of contemporary story of um a cleaner or you know not realizing that that is so awful but that's kind of as if that's all right because that's what happens so i'm just saying with the way or, or Nanny or something like that was that partly behind why you wanted to write it do you know it it was i wasn't uh i, I wasn't
2: motivated by a kind of personal experience. It was more the fa- the lack of that. It was more the the fact that I didn't know my history. Um, you know, I I believed a lot of the the history books that I'd been taught from were written by Americans, and having grown up in the Philippines and not here in the UK, I had not experienced like what a uh, someone of color uh, living in the in in the UK would have experienced. So. I came here quite confident. I knew who I was, you know, and uh, and it came as a surprise to me when, when people started to ask whether my children, how long I'd been looking after my children. I was like, since they were born, not realizing (laughs) that they they meant how long have you been nannying those children? So my children look a bit looked a bit
1: white when they were younger. Um, I was thinking of Filipino children now. Rather than writing for yourself, mm. um, I wondered if you that because I know elsewhere you've had this. Drive um that young children might recognize themselves in stories more I
2: think it's the it I see what what you're 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 getting at it's that growing up without seeing yourself in books mm. and it's something that I say when i 'm interviewed because I did grow up without seeing myself in books, and I loved books. I read incessantly, and it was Enid Blyton and Mark Twain and Louisa May Alcott. And I I kind of saw myself in the characters, but they didn't look like me. And it made me believe that I could never become an author because only white people became authors. And then I came to England and I thought, this is my chance to become a writer. And I I went to Waterstones and um, Barnes & Noble in those days. And um, not a single book with a brown face on it. So when I started writing in my early... In the 2000s, when I started writing, trying to write children's books... I only wrote about white characters. I wrote about English kids yeah. in English settings. I was trying to hide the fact that I was a person of color. And um, an agent actually turned to me and said, well, I really, really enjoyed this. But, you know, there's a problem because you're you're from the Philippines. And how am I going to sell a book with an Englishman, an English child, an English setting, an English war? How am I going to sell this when the author is Filipino? How do I rationalize this? And... And it was kind of a funny thing to say, because it's like saying, because you're from this one place, you can't write about anything else. And all fiction writing is writing about something else that is not used. But, um, and it is kind of racist to say, because I'm Filipino, I can only write about Filipino things. Yeah, I think so. But at the same time, I realized that I was that little girl who thought Filipinos couldn't be in books, mm. and that I was doing it. I was creating white books for white people, And I had to overcome that. And it was not easy because it meant uh, facing up to all kinds of things, being comfortable with representing your culture on the page. Um, And it was only when I was... And the funny thing was that was how I got published, was I wrote a book about a Filipino boy who'd been left behind by migration, which is the standard story of of Filipinos in the UK. Um, His mom is a nurse, many Filipino nurses, (laughs) yes, and she couldn't get a visa to bring him over and while he was waiting for his visa he suddenly turns into a giant by some <laughs> magical things then when she he gets his visa he arrives at Heathrow and he's eight foot tall and so that's that was my first book and that was what was my breakthrough and it covered all kinds of things like being left behind which happened to me as a child when my father left to work abroad 11 percent of Filipinos go abroad to work because there's no work in the Philippines. And then um, separation from family, uh, nurses in the Philippines, um, being considered, because I, I was the tallest in my class, which you wouldn't imagine. Yes. Filipinos are so, we're so little, but I was tall. So I was called the Hulk, all kinds of teasing that I experienced as a child. It's all there in that book. And earthquakes, earthquakes, yes, of course. We, we have earthquakes in the Philippines.
0: Well, thank you, thank you so much for for um, coming in today and talking about your book, and uh, and uh, it's it's called Wild Song, and it's um, fantastic. So I really recommend it.
1: Thank you, thank you. For and watching. Candy signed some copies in yes. the shop. I must say, I love the cover, Candy. So, what have we got to look out for this month, Tim?
0: Right, I've picked a few books. Um, that are coming out in paperback. So there's Landlines by Raina Wynn. Uh, she did the Salt Path, um, oh, yeah. which was a huge book about probably about five years ago now. And this is the third in her in her series, and it's about an enormous thousand mile journey that she does from the top of from Cape Roth all the way down to the southwest. Her health, raised her, her husband Moth, is um, is really not well. And last time she went on a big walk, he got better because of all that um, something about. Covering the ground, so this is a similar sort of story, but but a different different direction. Um, Regenesis by George Monbiot, which is a kind of view of uh, view of the future, the future for food especially. Um, and he, George is a bit of a bit of a marmite character. You, some people are really uh, wild, passionate about him, and other people absolutely. He can know,
1: be a bit depressing if you worry about climate. He winds climate. people up big time as well.
0: Mm. Um, but it's his idea is to how to replace the the era of extinction, which we're, we're sort of kind of seem to be in at the moment, with an age of regenesis, you know, mm. g- going forward. So, so, in some ways, it's a positive book. Colditz by Ben McIntyre. It's just about to come out in paperback. And if you think uh, those of us of a certain age will remember the television series. <laughs> I loved um, it. And they have their exits by Airy Neve and um, the board game, the board game Escape from Colditz, and all those things. Um, this is possibly the last word on Colditz. It's um, he's, 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 a, he's a brilliant journalist, I think. Uh, yeah. at ben McIntyre. He he really he tells, tells stories really well. Um, always entertaining, and I think that'll that'll be good in paperback. Um, the last one I wanted to mention was um, Richard Osman's third in his series uh i know i know that it always gets a nice rise out of you (laughs) susie
1: you'd be disappointed if i didn't but that's that's coming out in paperback i've just seen the cover of greg moss's cozy crime which is coming out i think in july that i i've been lucky enough to pre-read and it's very much um a sort of amalgam of um osman and more Reverend Richard Coles, I'd say. I thoroughly okay. enjoyed it. Good, I look forward to reading that. Yeah. So um, my backlisted choice was something that, you, you know I'm working in B-Dale's library on a Monday and Tuesday yes. afternoon um, when I'm not invigilating. Um, so one of the staff there, uh, we recommend books to each other. It's like a mini version of us here. Um, and he recommended I should read The Zanzibar Chest by Aidan Hartley. Now I was a bit nervous because I'm a fiction girl and um, it's a memoir but it is really good and I'd like to tell you masses about it but it's quite a thick book as you see and so I haven't got very far with it but it I love it because just the name of it the Zanzibar chest intrigued me and actually literally is a chest in which he finds his father's memoir so it's a memoir if you like about finding his father's memoir about a time when um a friend of his father whose memoir is also found in the zanzibar chest lordy that's complicated I, I know but it isn't when you read <laughs> it it's really well done um but it's it's actually found in the chest and it's mildewed and so on so it is actually set in africa but it's many peoples it's like this accretion of memoir if you like so there's this africa seen through a filter of all these different eyes and experiences in a way that is really well done so it's like you were saying about ben mcintyre dealing with his version of colditz as he did with so many things and making yeah. it into a cracking yarn this also is taking something and making it into this coherent and fascinating tale that i'm loving it's that she says oh because the friend his father's friend who dies becomes almost like banquo he kind of literally haunts his dad and and turns up in this unexpectedly. So I think the best thing was Harry Ritchie in the Daily Mail saying, a truly impressive and haunting book, an impassioned and often beautifully written account of one man's journey to the heart of darkness and his slow, painful voyage back. So it's okay. honestly, I, I okay. really found it... Sounds good. Yeah, Heart of Darkness, Conrad, going back relating to candy again so it all kind of meshes it does weirdly so here's my reading from the zanzibar chest by Aidan hartley i'm going to start more or less at the beginning because anywhere else is a spoiler and so this is where he actually flies back to rwanda the pool terrace was the place to be these days this is where the patriotic army top dogs and intelligence chiefs drank beer all afternoon I sat, maintaining a smile, nursing a cold beer, looking over towards the swimming pool. I remembered that the pool had been empty in the war. The UN troops had used it as their water supply when the taps ran dry, and they drank every drop. Today, as I watched from the terrace, the tootsie children of the Patriotic Army leaders, their plump black bodies glistening with wet, were leaping about in a game of water volleyball, For years I had lived in my own museum of horrors in which the Meridian swimming pool had remained empty. Meanwhile in the real world the kids were playing in the chlorinated water as white-gloved waiters carried trays of ice-cold beers to the war veterans and their wives. From Kigali I drove to Goma where Lazarus is buried in a mass grave somewhere. I was on the back of a motorbike taxi when two policemen in banana yellow helmets stopped us and shook down the driver for a bribe. Further up the road that morning, Hutu militias had ambushed a truck and killed three traders. The sun was beating down. The volcano on the horizon was smoking, ready to erupt any moment. I stood there watching a passing Congolese girl with hair braided into six-inch spikes and crowds of hustlers striding along in garish pyjama suits. Bicycle taxis with tinsel wound into the spokes. Gorillas in mirror shades with radios clamped to their ears. And my cell phone rang. I answered and it was my wife Claire calling from home. I love you, I said, and she replied, I love you. She told me that at that very moment when I picked up and she heard my voice on the phone, our baby daughter kicked inside her womb. At any one time we had six wars, a couple of famines, a coup d'etat and a natural disaster like a flood or an epidemic or a volcanic eruption, all within a radius of three hours flight from Nairobi. You could take off at sunrise, commute to witness a battle or hear a starving man breathe his last and be back home by nightfall in time to file a story, take a shower, then hit the Tamarind restaurant downtown for mangrove, crab and Stellenbosch. Or you were dropped off, watching the plane roar away in a cloud of red dust and you were gone for weeks, out of contact and a thousand miles from help. And each time you returned home after a trip like that, for a few days you were as mad as Gulliver talking to his horses. These were the years when we hitched rides on dawn flights carrying cargoes of blood plasma, guns or baby food to bush airstrips. Flights on battered Antonovs with the word Nazdrenya, cheers, emblazoned on the nose of the fuselage flown by Russian crews with the mongoloid faces of Soyuz cosmonauts from my boyhood stamp collection, their breath sour from drink, on $300 a month with girls thrown in, running weapons in the orbit of modern African wars. I recalled flights when the passengers sat among boxes of toothpaste and grenades, cement and drums of gasoline. I recall sitting next to a little girl in a frilly pink dress and bonnet and ivory armlets clutching a yellow-haired Caucasian doll as below us broccoli-like black forests stretched for a thousand miles, unbroken and empty. I'd climb aboard the Cessna at first light, in my mind kissing the tarmac goodbye like the Pope in reverse. The pilot throttled up, mumbled into his microphone, neck muscles bunching like a bullfrog. On takeoff, I used to recite the Lord's Prayer over and over until I got stuck on a line like a mantra, deliver us from evil, deliver us from evil, deliver us from evil, as the earth fell away. Ten minutes out from Nairobi and the great gate of clouds opened out with the pillars of Mount Kenya to the north and Kilimanjaro to the south. Our path led over patchwork peasant lands, sequined with tin-hot roofs glinting in the sun. Further out were empty, arid plains, broken up only by smooth brown copies and the capillaries of seasonal streams that dissipated into stains of green against the ochre and white desert. Right, Tim, that was a great month. And you've had some really interesting book signings here recently. Yes,
0: we had uh, Frances Liardet, um, who we talked about earlier, who you've been reading, um, talking about Think, Think of Me, her, her latest paperback. Um, we've had Roger Morgan Grenville. Another who, of our friend of, guests, friend of the show. Friend of the show. Who, who um, talking about a, a book he's just written called um, Across a Waking Land, which is about his journey, uh, and all these journeys, from the south to the north this time, unlike rainer Wynn, and uh he's looking at all the he, he did it on his own and he's looking at all the different um, the different schemes for bi- bi- biodiversity and renaturing he's found along the way and um, goes through different different styles of countryside all the way as well so it's really interesting uh, he did twenty miles a day, and the idea was to follow the way the spring happened, so was the oak leaves unfurled in the south it's about twenty miles a day they they happen each each day that they, they you know moving up, moving up the country so that that spring obviously happens in in the north of Scotland a lot later than it does in the south of England. So he he followed this all the way up. So it's, it's, a, it's a cracking read,
1: actually. I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I'd look forward to reading that. Excellent. Um, well, some great news for everybody. That I don't know if you knew, Tim, that Shine Radio is being nominated for an award at the Arias, which, um, so of Times Radio, and I learnt from Times Radio that it's apparently the radio version of the Oscars. Oh, so, right. you that. know... There you go. Crack on. Let's so Are I we up
0: we're up for one? We're I for don't a, I don't dong? think Talking no.
1: Books entered it,
0: <laughs> did we, <Tom? laughs> If we had, we'd have won it, obviously. <laughs> of Could course. Give other people a chance. Of course. Yeah. On that note, let's let you know of course that this goes out as a podcast. It's available in all the usual places. So if you want to listen to any of the backlist uh of the programmes we've done over the last um couple of years now, yeah. you can you can find them on there in all the usual places, Spotify and all the usual places. And uh, don't forget to let us know what you're reading in your local book clubs, um, and we'll mention it on the programme. Wonderful. Thanks, Tim. Thank you very much, Susie.
1: You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman. Belief
2: If you believe in the beat
0: And in the friends you've made on the dance floor
1: Belief
0: If you believe in flare trousers, the funky chicken and the disco finger If you believe I'm a great dancer Well, then frankly, you'll believe anything Belief We got it together, didn't we? I believe in Mirables, classic soul Funk and disco. Believe. Friday nights from six with me, James the Captain Birdseye. Only on Shine Radio.
1: I believe. In